Dear Rowan, we are gathered here today to begin a fine farewell to Eric Portman. In this two-part episode, we will take a look at one of his finest films by my account, at least one of my favorite films for which he was a part. That is not to say any of his other roles are less engaging, but this is one of Papa's favorite films and I came to it only through my research into Eric Portman. Otherwise, I may never have discovered it, as even the film's director John Huston rarely speaks of it. Luckily, I was able to track down a copy of the film on DVD, which was no simple affair, but it was ever so worth it. Here we go with a look into a director and two actors as they look into the father of psychoanalysis. With all my love and admiration, Papa. Vienna, 1885. Dr. Theodore Maynard enters to a gaggle of university students fawning over the esteemed physician. He brushes past them and they follow as Maynard marches through the grim and gray hallway. We get to see him up close, easily recognizing his look of strong-willed determination. The ever-prideful healer is not a man accustomed to being questioned. Maynard commands an air of arrogance that is stifling. Nurses bow to him as he passes, each ready to act on his every whim the second he commands it. The head nurse escorts him to a new patient. A new patient, Herr Professor. Mysteria, who admitted this patient? I did, Herr Professor. Are you ignorant of my rule barring so-called aesthetics from my department? I'm blind, Herr Professor. I can't move my legs. <laughs> I know the rules. But this woman is sick. With your permission, I would like to make some tests. Yes. By all means, let us conduct tests here and now, Herr Freud. Gentlemen, I shall use this occasion to enlighten you as to the true nature of hysteria. Be quiet. This woman claims to be suffering from paralysis of the left leg. In a genuine spastic paralysis, the leg would not be so inflexibly rigid. Gentlemen, our paralytic is putting on an exhibition more suited to the folk theater than to a bed in my ward. Her symptoms have been deliberately assumed with the purpose of attracting attention, gaining pity, and escaping the responsibilities of life. As for her claim to blindness, a match. Light it. What do you see? Her pupils are contracting. Gentlemen, do you believe this to be a genuine case of blindness? No. no. Ah, uh, Herr Professor, will you permit me to make a test? By all means. No reaction. Is this pretending? Anesthesia induced by deliberately maintaining the leg in a cramped and unnatural position. Is terror is another name for lying. Peter, there's no therapy for that. You will see to it personally, Herr Freud. This bed is vacated at once. What we've seen here is the first power struggle between Dr. Maynard and Sigmund Freud in the 1962 film directed by John Huston, starring Montgomery Cliff and Eric Portman, among many other actors who had interesting relationships to this film. Since we have been discussing Eric Portman's career, 
I would like to focus mainly on the film's representation of the power struggle between Maynard and Freud. I believe that it was the friction between them which ultimately fueled the force of will it took for Freud to tirelessly work out his theories on the human mind. Eric Portman was 19 years Cliff's senior, but only surpassed John Huston in age by five years. What bonded them all professionally was a shared desire to do personally meaningful work with quality talent. These three men were drawn to projects that spoke to them in some way. At least this is how it seems to me and each have said as much in various interviews. Of course, it's common to hear an actor, director, or producer indicate that they are fueled by projects they are passionate about, but the truth is that everyone needs to work, and at the end of the day, most talent signs on to whatever is available to them. Montgomery Clift was in this exact position when Freud came to him by way of Houston, who had directed him in The Misfits. Clift had been in a serious car accident in 1956, which altered his appearance. In Hollywood, an actor's face, and many times their body, are what people are paying to see. His ability to work had seriously declined, to say the least. Clift had also been rather recently afflicted by cataracts, which were used to eerie advantage by the cinematographer Douglas Slocum. He lit those eyes in such a way that they nearly become a character in and of themselves. While Montgomery Cliff certainly needed the work, I don't mean to say he was only in it for the money. On the contrary, he dove into the character with a feverish zeal. This project was, in many ways, what we currently call Oscar bait, a film so carefully constructed by just the right people in just such a way that one must assume, with common precision, that there will be Oscar nominations aplenty. There were nominations. One Academy Award Best Writing nomination for Charles Kaufman and Wolfgang Reinhardt. Faring better at the Golden Globes, there were nominations for Best Drama, Best Actress for Susanna York, Best Supporting Actress for Susan Connor, and finally, John Huston was nominated as Best Director. There were also nominations at the Berlin International Film Festival, Directors Guild of America, and the Writers Guild of America. Notably, no one won, and Montgomery Clift wasn't even nominated in any category. In fact, even though Freud gave him his highest paying role, he drew more criticism than acclaim. Clift did not look like Freud in any way, and that's just fact. But not a fact that always gets taken into consideration in other biopics. Renee Zellweger looks nothing like Judy Garland, even with all the makeup and prosthetics in Hollywood. But they let her play the part. No, my thought is that by 1962, the public had fallen enough out of love with Montgomery Clift that they weren't willing to follow him into a role that took him so far away from what they wanted to see of the actor on screen. Audiences are fickle, but they also stick to what they like, and they don't like, for what they like, to change. It's a fine line an actor has to walk in order to stay relevant, 
working, and personally satisfied with their work. Even though the role and the film were thought to be Oscar bait while in pre-production, Clift was personally vested in proving he still had the chops. Sigmund Freud was the kind of meaty role that an actor's actor yearned for. Montgomery Clift was known for his deep character work for really digging into his roles on a psychological level. Donna Reed, who worked with Monty on From Here to Eternity, had this to say in his LA Times obituary. I've never known an actor who went so far as Monty did in getting every detail, every reaction, every emotion of the character he was depicting. What happens when a neurotically detailed character actor gets into the head of Sigmund Freud? This leads me to another theory I would like to explore. Montgomery Clift was a homosexual in a time and in a business that did not allow it. The psychological impact of living an entirely fictional life in front of the press and the public at large had to be extreme for him and all the others who had to live the same way, not out, not proud. Living in secrecy and sometimes shame because they could never reconcile the multiple lives they were forced to lead in order to work in the craft they loved. This is when Montgomery Clift was handed the role of a lifetime. The universe granted him an opportunity to explore himself as he delved into the mind of Sigmund Freud. Here we have a snake eating its own tail, psychoanalyzing himself through the eyes of Freud as Monty imagined him, exploring his own demons through a fantasy psychoanalyst Clift created in his mind based on his own perception of Freud. I'm not sure that even Freud would know where to begin unraveling that tangle. Montgomery Cliff died from a heart attack four years after Freud was released. He was only 45 years old. John Huston, in his autobiography and open book, says of the inception for the Freud film. Before the war, when Wolfgang Reinhardt and I were writing Dr. Ehrlich's Magic Bullet for Warners, we discussed the possibility of making a picture based on Freud's life and work. Wolfgang brought the subject up again during one of his visits to St. Clarence. It would have been about midsummer in 1959. We discussed a number of approaches and finally agreed that this should be something that breathed brimstone. Freud's descent into the unconscious should be as terrifying as Dante's descent into hell. With this in mind, Wolfgang and I went to Paris to see Jean-Paul Sartre. I want to make sure that we zoom in on the premise here. John Huston basically wanted to make a horror film out of Freud's life of work. To repeat, in his own words, This should be something that breathed brimstone. Freud's descent into the unconscious should be as terrifying as Dante's descent into hell. Let's take just a moment here, not to be salacious or trade in toward gossip. However, John Huston was well known to have quite a few demons himself, many of which would have been endlessly interesting to Sigmund Freud. As a matter of fact, 
Freud was only 50 years old when Houston was born. If John Houston had daddy issues, then who best to do a film about than the father of psychoanalysis? After all, Freud used it on himself to diagnose his own daddy issues. In addition, Freud was obsessed with sexual relations deemed outside the norm, and in very simple terms, making wide generalizations, he boiled the reasons for sexual promiscuity down to parental issues. John Huston was a legendary overachiever in the area of <clears throat> romance. I should think that an intelligent man such as John would have had a great deal of interest in what Freud's diagnosis would be for Houston's insatiable interest in romantic encounters. Are you catching my drift here? So far we have two dynamic talents who have personal demons that were ripe for study by the subject of the film. Both talents known for emotional involvement in their projects intense emotional involvement. Then there was Eric Portman. He was known to be a professional who showed up to do quality work and go home. However, he was also known to choose his roles based on his level of interest in the character and the material. Portman studied his characters so thoroughly that he analyzed the entire script down to the most minute detail so he clearly understood where his character fit in the story. This makes his portrayal of the icy, egomaniacal Dr. Maynard even the more interesting. Unfortunately, we don't know what Eric Portman's personal views were on psychoanalysis, the subconscious, Oedipus complex, or any other belief held by Freud or Maynard. Perhaps Portman believed how Maynard did, that people do things because they want to. End of discussion. Based on what we do know about how Portman approached every role, we can rest assured that he had feelings about the character, the subject matter, and the debate between Maynard and Freud. As a homosexual himself, it would have been impossible not to approach a film about a horrifying descent into the depravity of the human mind in a time when not being straight was emphatically immoral. With all of this in mind, there is a wonderful scene between Eric Portman and Montgomery Clift that I find to be electrifying. I would have adored to have seen them analyze this scene beforehand, discussing each of their motivations and character traits. Stay tuned for part two.